My guest today is the founder and owner of a financial technology company, Lennox Park Solutions, that is doing some amazing things. From connecting investment professionals to investment opportunities, helping clients manage fundraising, deal pipeline, business development, operations, and much more. Please welcome Jason Lamine. Jason, how's it going? I'm well. Good to be here. Virtually, of course. Yes, virtually. <laughs> well, hey, thanks for thanks for coming on the podcast, Jason. Appreciate it. Of course. Yeah. Of course. So let's. I, jump- you know, I love what you're doing. I think mm. this is um, this is uh, incredibly important. You know, as you and I have talked about before, I think that visibility like this creates validity, and so what you're doing is is really important. So. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Well, thanks, man. Thanks for those words. I appreciate that. And let's jump right into it. Sure. What do you do? (laughs) So I run a fintech company or a financial technology company, which means that we create software and technology products for financial services industry. And some of our products go beyond financial services. But as you know, RJ, my background is rooted in sort of investment banking and investment management. And so we really took our domain expertise and found some some real challenges in the industry and started to use elements of technology that exist today to solve those challenges. I'm based here in New York and we have an office in Austin, Texas. Mm-hmm. Of course, you know, our roots, our roots there at the University of Texas. I'm still very much involved at the university. And so geographically made sense to set up shop in in Austin, but but also, you know, on a personal level, it's been great to get back there. So we've got those two offices and we service clients across the globe. And yeah, that's about it. All right. Now, these challenges that you've seen out there and the, the reason that you've created this company, can you talk a little bit about the challenges that are out there for these financial services companies that you saw and what exactly you do to resolve them for your clients or, or any sure, sort of the sure. solutions you come up with? Yeah. Sure. So maybe I'll, I'll talk a little bit about the path and the journey that got us there, because yeah. I think one of the exciting things about our company is, you know, I like to say that our mission found us. And we made sure to pay attention. Working in the asset management industry, there were quite a few things that became very obvious to us as we worked with large asset owners. And these are public pension funds or university endowments, or it could be family office groups, foundations like the Ford Foundation, et cetera. Company, you know, organizations like that invest capital and they usually invest that capital with asset managers like Blackstone, KKR, et cetera. And in between those two constituents, there's a lot of friction in how they actually meet each other. You know, how does the teacher retirement system of Texas find the asset managers that are going to manage that pensioner capital? And there's a lot of friction um, in between, and there's a lot of inefficiencies in how those connections are made. And so when in our consulting and advisory practice, which is the original way we started the company, we sat at the nexus between those two constituents. And so we had this sort of bird's eye view at all of the inefficiencies. And this was happening at a time where, you know, as we all know, the things that you can achieve and accomplish using technology today are really extraordinary. Mm -hmm. And so 
we thought that it was an, a really opportune time to take advantage of technology that exists and help streamline some of those inefficiencies. And we think if we're successful, at the end of the day, it'll be pensioners that are getting the benefit of savings. It'll be philanthropic organizations and charitable organizations that will save money and, you know, university endowments that will be able to preserve their scholarship capital. So, so for us, we really found our, our mission, as I say, when sitting in that nexus and, and, and really coming to the determination that there could be much more efficiency in the way those, those two constituents connect. The other thing, RJ, that, that really amplified our, the sort of zeal that we brought to this, the way I like to think about it, is that one of the inefficiencies is a real, very, very clear bias in the way that capital is deployed or distributed to the asset management community. And the folks that are significantly impacted by that bias are women and people of color. One study estimated that only 1.3% of the $7 trillion asset management market is managed by women or people of color. And we could see that sort of inequity. And I think Sometimes in life, when you're faced up with something like that, an injustice like that, and we're kind of seeing all of this play out in our country now, but when you're faced with something so blatantly obvious and unjust, it's hard to turn away. And so five years ago, we made the decision to convert our company to exclusively technology Mm. and build collaborative platforms that circumvent a lot of that bias and empower participants in asset management to connect with each other directly. Um, And we've built a platform that does that. We've also aggregated more data than any other organization in asset management around diversity uh, and inclusion and are starting to apply real tangible metrics in how we assess and monitor DEI. And by DEI, I mean diversity, equity, and inclusion. The diversity conversation, we've been having it for a long time. For a long time, but that's just it. It's been conversation. The tangible steps have been incremental and marginal at best. And oftentimes when you peel back the onion and really look at where the progress has been made, we find some ugly truths as well. Mm. If you look at diversity as a whole, you might make the argument there's been very little but, but incremental progress. But if you peel back the onion, you're not going to find it with people of color. You're not going to find enough of it with women, but you're, but you're really not going to find it with people of color. Right. And if you peel back the onion further, the groups that are severely underrepresented, you know, Native Americans, the Latinx community, and certainly the black community. So data really gives us and arms us with where the pain points are. And we knew that this was missing entirely. And so we started building it. And today we've got an ecosystem on our flagship product is called Roundtables, which is a cloud-based marketplace where all of these participants can connect. Mm. But, you know, we've got about a trillion dollars of, of uh, investor AUM that's represented on the platform. Oh. Um, a little under a thousand organizations have registered onto the platform. They've shared close to 130 billion of investments with each other. And we're impact weighting all of those investments for the impact it's having on diversity, equity, and inclusion. So we're bringing metrics to a market that has been missing that sort of tangible 
way to measure and make progress. And at the same time, democratizing access by making it easier for, for folks to collaborate and connect with each other. Wow, that's a very great. long, a, a very long-winded answer. I apologize. No, uh, no, that was great. So a trillion dollars were wow of a AUM on this, uh, basically in this uh, cloud platform that you're making it easier and more efficient for these asset management firms to, I guess, reach out to investors, and also on the diversity and with everything that's going on now. And I know it's only been a short period of, uh, amount of time, but are you seeing the needle move much? Yeah, I mean, we've absolutely seen an acceleration in the prioritization of diversity and inclusion. And there are a few things driving that. One, you can point to very specific things like George Floyd. Right. But I think current events and events of the summer have really brought to the forefront the real social injustice. Yes. And what that does is it, it creates space for real honest conversation. Now, the I think from folks like me is that this issue can't stay in the realm of conversation, mm -hmm. which it often does. People are very good at the, the headline grabbing, the narratives, the rhetoric. The business of diversity has been tailored over time. And so everybody knows the right thing to say. Everybody knows you can check some boxes here or there. But... I think the events of this year have created the space for accountability and for people to ask the one step further question. Great. We all agree that diversity inclusion is important. What are you doing about it? What's the structural change and the systemic change that you're going to influence either at the individual level or at the company level? Yeah. And so I think there's a, a window for holding folks accountable. And the only way to do that is with metrics. Mm -hmm. The only way to do that is with metrics. So I think that as people have woken up in 2020 and really faced the ugliness of the racial bias that exists in all of our systems, the next step is, well, what are we going to do about it? Well, we can't do anything about it until we start to put metrics and measure where we are. So the saying goes, you can't manage what you're not measuring. And so organizations that haven't even taken the step to measure what their diverse talent looks like, what the attrition rate for the diverse talent looks like, how they even qualify diversity. Are they seeing representation from the LGBTQ community, the disabled community, the immigrant community, all of these things that create a real mosaic for what diversity is. If, if companies aren't even measuring that, then they're certainly not going to be managing it. They're certainly not going to be managing it. So, so I think 2020 has created the space for honest dialogue about it. The tools exist. And now it's just, is the will there? And, uh, and are people going to do something about it? Yeah. Wow. No, that's great. And it's great. You have all that data. Data is key, right? And I know you mentioned that you know, five years ago, you guys made that pivot or made that change to head this way to be more of a technology-based company and to tackle these issues. But what was that transition like for you? I know that it couldn't have been an easy change for the company. So what was that transition like? You know, actually, I will say that I think the blocking and tackling of transitioning a business from a consulting practice to a technology firm, you know, there are challenges there. But 
you just need a strategic plan. We have an extraordinary advisory board at my company. And so the first thing we did was do a real honest assessment of the skill sets that our company collectively had, which at the time was mostly, actually entirely in the investment banking or investment management world. And so we looked up and said, well, we're going to become a technology company. What does our network and technology look like? And it was virtually non-existent. And so the first thing we did is expand our networks and I assembled and added um, some individuals onto our advisory board that could complement and fill in the gaps that we didn't have, the, the, the most urgent gaps. And when you're constructing an advisory board, there, there are two ways to go. One, you go for big names right. that create brand recognition in some way. The downside to doing that is it's hard to get those people to roll up their sleeves oftentimes right. get, and get down to brass tacks and work. The second way is to go and find people that have very specific high level of skill sets that you are missing in your company and that are hungry enough and interested enough to really contribute to the enterprise value of your company. And sometimes those people have big names attached to them, but really what you're looking for are the, you know, has this person, what is their expertise level with respect to data science? We have an individual on our advisory board that is an exceptional data scientist. And so he was the one, quite frankly, that pushed us earlier than we thought we were ready for to start aggregating data in ways that led us to be able to standardize some of these metrics. We have an individual on our advisory board that's a senior executive at Salesforce and, and, and helped us think about how to build an institutional pipeline for sales and marketing. So you assemble a team that can help you with the transition and laying out, because you, know, you could say, let's go and hire the people to do it. But you don't even know how to, you know, I'd never hired engineers before. I'd hire right. people that are in finance and hiring people that code and, and project managers around engineering. That's a very different skill set. So I had to come up the learning curve and I did that with a very, very good advisory board. So the blocking and tackling takes strategy in how to transition. The momentum was pure, man. You know, <laughs> we found our mission and there's no looking back. When you do that, you know that you've paid attention to the clients. In some ways, they've directed you in a way, you know, and saying, this is the thing that, that we are struggling with. And you observe and you reflect, and then you make the call. And I think it's a lot easier, RJ, when you find something like we did, where you're faced with some of the inequities in how capital is distributed. And I'm a black CEO founder. And, and so I understand a little bit of the bias and mm -hmm. the effects of bias. And so there's a sort of empathic way that, that I could look at this and say, if only one to 2% of capital is ending up at asset managed firms that are run or founded or led by women or people of color, we've got to figure out a way to change the trajectory and remove some of those hurdles. And if you're lucky enough in business to find a mission like that, yeah. then it keeps you going. The decision to transition certainly wasn't difficult. Waking up every day to affect the transition wasn't difficult. Putting the roadmap together 
take some strategic thinking and time. And we were able to do it and we brought along almost every single one of our clients from doing business with us as a consulting and advisory firm to now engaging and subscribing to our technology platform. So over five years, it's been successful. If you caught me on any one of those days, in between, a little bit of an up and down, but over five years, we're very happy with how it's worked out. That's great. Something you're passionate about, and it made that journey and that transition even easier for you. So that's great. Now, you're CEO of a company. You're in New York. You also have a branch in Austin, which you said holds a little place in your heart. So let's go back a little bit. You started out in the investment banking industry and you talked about the reasons, but can you talk a little bit about just starting this, you know, starting your own company, what it took, just kind of the steps that, that it took to, to start the company? Yeah. So this is a, uh, it's interesting because I think the further along you get in the journey, you realize some real sort of truths and anchor point moments. So I think it's Steve Jobs that said, starting your own venture takes a little bit of insanity and it does. You, you sort of have to be appropriately naive about some things because if all the facts are laid out to you, particularly RJ, as you know, because you and I share a background working in investment banking, when you're sitting at an organization and you're seemingly successful and at least the way that our culture reinforces success, and I'm using quotes, quotation marks as I use that, it can seem crazy to go and, and take this leap and start a business. If at that time you actually knew everything it would take, I don't think anybody would do it. it. It really is, it's a journey, but I've never looked back. And I think that I had a terrific experience at Merrill Lynch in investment banking and worked there for 10 years. And so many of my friends and colleagues and peers are people that I met in that industry. So it was a really fantastic way to start my career. But pretty soon into it, I realized that that was probably not where I was going to end my career. And so I was constantly thinking about what the next chapter would look like. Now, it is very hard for all the reasons I mentioned before to, to proactively turn in your Wall Street bull and bear cufflinks and, and go and do something else. But sometimes a confluence of events might make it a little bit easier. And for me, that's exactly what happened because I was, you know, I was doing well at Merrill Lynch and it was an illogical decision to think about doing something else, except we had just gone through the financial crisis. And so while the group that I was part of had done well, the overall investment banking industry was going to be very different going forward. And it has been. So I could acknowledge that. So the next 10 years are going to be different than my previous 10 years. I'm originally from Sierra Leone, as you recall, and lived there until I was 13. So my father at the time still lived in Sierra Leone and he had a stroke and was pretty sick. And so that left a little bit of worry in my mind. And those two things created room for me to actually question in a meaningful way what I was doing. And I will tell you that for me, it happened, there was a moment in time, I was at the gym and I remember looking up with those two things heavily weighing on my mind, the future of banking and what my place was going to be in it. You know, my father, you know, was ill in Sierra Leone and then some other, you know, normal things that, that were going on. But I remember being at the gym and it was a Wednesday night. And I remember thinking, Jason, you've always gone after what you want. 
you've always been on the path that's leading you in the direction you want to go. And for the first time, I felt like I was coasting and inertia had taken over. And I was just kind of following this path that I was almost certain I didn't want to go down. You know, I was going down this path at a, at a pace that was pretty fast. And so you know, I made the decision at that moment that I was going to do something else. And so I, I went home and you check your assets and see if it makes reasonable sense and it didn't. And, and then you still make, you still, you still make the call anyway. And I did. And I had a very amicable separation from Merrill Lynch and I'm still very much friends with, with all those folks, but then you make the transition and I didn't know exactly what I was going to do, but I did a lot of soul searching over the, the following year. The first thing I did is I went to Sierra Leone. I saw my father and spent three weeks there. It was a really great trip. I came back, and I spent a lot of time with some of my former clients and it really at the behest of their encouragement and saying, hey, we could use some independent advice right now. The world's sort of falling apart oh. and we trust you and, and could you work as a consultant for us and help us with some things? And I said, yes. And, and by doing that, realized that I loved what I did. I, you know, I, and I, we built an expertise doing it and I like the world of finance very much and and so there was a business to start. And so I partnered with a former banking colleague of mine and we started Lennox Park in 2009 as an investment consulting and advisory company. And the part of starting a company, it, it really is a journey. And oftentimes when people sort of ask what the, the, the most challenging parts are, yeah, you know, I won't talk about the rewards because everybody sort of glamorizes the rewards of entrepreneurship, <laughs> which there's some really fantastic things, but folks oftentimes glamorize it. The challenging parts that don't get talked enough about are the mental aspects and the mental adjustment. And people oftentimes say, oh, that must have been hard. You, you go from making money or making a lot of money and then you're not. And how is that? Well, in reality, that's, that's arithmetic. You can make those adjustments much easier than, than people might think. What's really hard is your sense of identity. That's the part that 10 years in, I'm still not done with that journey because what you realize is, you know, after I left Merrill Lynch for a very long time, I realized that even though I wasn't completely fulfilled as an investment banker, it had actually become a part of my identity and one that I was probably more comfortable with than I thought I was. And so for the time when you leave and you stop being that person and you're kind of brick by brick, disaggregating your identity, there are parts of it that you have to sort of reconcile your comfort level with. And for me, I was surprised at how much I had gotten comfortable with identifying as an investment banker, because it, you know, there are things, as I said, the, the world can reinforce things in ways that you get used to. If I was at a dinner party and somebody said, oh, Jason, nice to meet you, what do you do? And I said, well, I, I'm an M&A banker at Merrill Lynch. I didn't love everything that that might imply about me, but I'd certainly gotten comfortable with a lot of what it implied about right. me and who I was. And so now when you leave and you're no longer that, and you're at that same dinner party and somebody says, what do you do? You now have to, you have to rebuild the story. Yeah. And that is daunting. It's daunting. <laughs> Because for a while, that story is not only empty, 
it's not even it's not refined and you're not even certain about it so it's a that journey well you can hear now i mean this is what your podcast is about when you asked me at the outset what do you do now i talk about it in a way that is infused with you know the passion that i truly feel about it and the confidence and the comfort but it's been 10 years 10 years ago I would have said, RJ, I can't do this podcast. Let's, let's talk again later. So the identity part of this is the part of the journey that for me, at least, and I think for a lot of entrepreneurs and founders ends up being the hardest one. But once you overcome it and you really start to project the individual that you authentically are and are comfortable with because you're making the decision every day to be that person, you can never look back. You can never look back. And that has been the hardest part of the journey. And, you know, this is often the case, also the most rewarding. Well, I, I get it. I get it. I like that. You mentioned that you were coasting, you were comfortable, you were content with what you're doing, but you knew it, it just wasn't you. It wasn't really your plans. And you took that risk. It's a risk. And you took that risk. And, and like I've said before, you know, you have to take a risk to succeed. And succeed, it's all relative, but you have to take risks to succeed. And that's what you did. And look at you now. So that's awesome. Now, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. One quick thing about, yeah. about risk, because it's funny how we think about it. And, mm-hmm. and I've sort of recalibrated my thinking about it. There's also risk. I realized looking back, there's risks staying at your seat as an investment banker right. at a firm. The decisions you make every day have some level of risk attached to them. And there was a point in time where I did look at this venture and say, gosh, why am I taking all of these risks? Why am I taking all these risks? Over the course of 10 years, this is the most rewarding, but also the, re- the least risky thing I can do. And at its most basic level, I can wake up every single day and go to my office because I don't think anybody's going to tell me to go home. <laughs> you know, I mean, so, so there are risks that don't exist in the entrepreneurial path that do exist if you're working for a large organization. I do think that we need to think about those things sometimes and sort of recalibrate what, you know, what our ideas of risk are. Yeah, no, fair point. All right. Can you talk about what a, a typical day of yours looks like? Mm. CEO of Lennox Park? Yeah. You know, um, at different times in our company, the life cycle, obviously it, it's changed. But today, the great thing is today I get to do the parts. I have a great team you know, we're still a small company, but I have a great team that I can rely on and trust. And that is essential for any leader because I'm my best self when I know that and trust that my team is getting things done and I don't have to micromanage. And they also feel empowered to be able to contribute in a meaningful way to the company. So because that allows me to be kind of my best self, the thing that I probably spend my time on the most mentally in a day is thinking about the composition of our organization, the team, the people, no matter what business you're in, you are in the people business. Right. I mean, there's no company out there that can succeed long-term. And again, I use succeed in the most comprehensive way in the long-term without assembling an extraordinary team to get them there. Mm-hmm. So I think about how to recruit, retain, develop, empower, and hold accountable the best talent that I can get. And I think about how to do that in the most inclusive way. 
for all of the reasons that we fortunately have data to support. And so I spend a lot of mental time in a day thinking about my team. And sometimes that can be, it's your coach. You've got incredible athletes and how do you put the five athletes that you've got on the court and get them to work in the most optimal way? And that means you have to know the skill sets of each of the athletes, which are all different. You have to know how to motivate each of them, which will all be different. And so if you are convicted, I am, that the success of our company depends on the success of our team working together, then that, is, that becomes the most important thing you do every day. So my mental space is taken up substantially every day thinking about my lead engineer is in Bosnia and he's a superstar. And how do I make sure that he feels connected to our organization every day and understands how important he is to the company and feels included and challenged and pushed and motivated? And the way he feels all those things, very different from the way my head of strategy in Austin, Texas reacts and is motivated. So I think about how to play those dynamics with each of them. On a practical basis, I spend most of my day talking to potential clients or existing clients. And some of the clients on our platform, you know, we have the largest pension fund in the country. CalPERS is a client of ours. New York Common is the third largest pension fund in the country. These are really big enterprise clients. Prudential is a client. MacArthur Foundation, one of the largest most notable foundations in the country. And you have clients like that, that takes a level of senior leadership interaction most daily, not with each client, but at some point, you know, in a given week, each of those clients will have something. And then of course, you know, we're growing business. And so, you know, I'm talking to the large organizations that aren't clients of ours yet and trying to strike enterprise relationships with them and creating visibility for our company. So yeah, with respect to Lenox Park, those are the things I do. I do speak at conferences and panels. The other thing I'm a big believer in, RJ, is that when your life is one dimensional, it's hard to ensure that you get success mm -hmm. in the way that I think about it. And so I've tried and I encourage everybody at our company to have multiple things that they are focused on. Similarly to you, yeah. there are parts that you can attribute to your what you do for a living. And thankfully, I think we're all passionate and love what we do. But I also, I'm a very, very involved dad. And so I make sure that I carve out substantial and meaningful quality time with my eight-year-old daughter, where I'm very present with her. And then I carve out time to be a good friend and to to be uh, involved in things like, I've been fortunate enough to be involved with the United Nations for about 10 years. And so I, I make sure to, to, to keep enough balls in there because what you know is that on any given day, something's gonna go wrong somewhere and something's not gonna be great somewhere. And when I've had a tough day with Lennox Park, my eight-year-old daughter doesn't really, she's not gonna give me a lot of space for that. You know, she. She just wants to spend her time with daddy in a good mood. And so switching gears like that can be really important. And I think having those multiple dimensions just gives you a better chance of having a, a happier, more, more successful life. Nice.
Yeah, no, you, you definitely are involved in a lot of other things. I know you're on a few boards, right? The Department of Economics at UT, you're on the board of that advisory board, and also I think the Department of African-American Studies. Is that correct? Yeah, African, African and African Diaspora Studies. Yeah. Okay, yep. Okay, yeah. nice. Yeah. And you mentioned the work that you've been doing with the United Nations. And I think you also, are you involved with something with uh, Sierra Leone as well? Yeah, yeah. As I mentioned, I went back to Sierra Leone after I resigned from Merrill Lynch. And me and a few of my friends, we started a small foundation where we raise money on a project-by-project basis and, and, and take on some projects around healthcare and education in Sierra Leone. That's great. Um, it's been challenging to balance those two things because you, know, you really, you, you want some feet on the ground in Sierra Leone. Fortunately, I still have a network and family members, you know, distant family, but, but family members there who thankfully still take my calls and, <laughs> and they help us navigate so that we're able to do some real tangible work. And yes. there are some incredible organizations that, that are tackling really important issues like malaria and child psychology and, and things like that. That's not our organization. Ours is the one that comes in to a hospital and says, you need really high efficiency washing machines, industrial size washing machines, and it costs $15,000 to do that. So we'll go raise the 15,000 come and, and give it to you. Which is important. So, yeah, yeah, no, it's, uh, it's important. Continuity is difficult, you know, especially when things happen where you sort of most urgently need it. But we were happy. The last significant project we did was when there was an Ebola outbreak in Sierra Leone. And we were able to work with a hospital around some making sure that they're adequately prepared. And, you know, it's, it's a sort of tangible way to say we're doing something. And so the support of my network of friends and my family has been really great around that. Nice. That's great. That's yeah. awesome. All right. Now, back to what you do. So skill sets. You mentioned it being a people business and you're working with your existing clients, potential clients too, presenting at, at conferences and panels. So definitely communication skills. It seems like it's important. You mentioned the coaching, so leadership skills as well, being a CEO. What other skill sets and characteristics would you say are important to be successful in what you do? Yeah, I think about this quite a bit. And I can sort of speak to what I aspire to hone in and, and refine over time. But but if I look back and think, what are the things and what are the attributes that I've relied on? And this is not to say that the, this is the recipe for everybody, but that I've relied on to be able to continue on the journey. First, there's, there's some things that are difficult to learn, but integrity is important. Integrity, it may be the most valuable in fact, I think it is the most valuable attribute that I think about in every relationship that I'm getting into, whether it's with a client, an employee, an investor. Integrity is important. When things go wrong and the lights go out, integrity is what guides you through it. And things will go wrong. Mm. And your principles and your integrity, if they are unwavering, they will see you through. So never compromising on that has been really important for me. The second thing I would say is courage. And there are a lot of things that sort of fall into that bucket, but it's hard. You get knocked down. We talk about this in, in sort of hypotheticals all the time, but it's really hard when you get knocked down and your confidence level is low and you know 
the 50th client has told you no in a row and you're questioning everything else, it is hard to wake up the next morning and go back into it with all of the zeal and energy that it requires. And so that's courage and, and sort of tied in with the first one around integrity. It takes courage to, to act with integrity sometimes because there are some shortcuts and the shortcuts are tempting. So, so having the courage to stand up and, and, you know, have the principles and maintain them over time, long-term, that's great. And I've also found that courage and integrity, if you're going to try to build a great team with exceptional people, they will look at those things and whether they know they value them or not, people naturally value those things. And so I think that I sort of always think about how my team would think about things and when I make decisions. You want to be a leader, but acting with integrity, acting with courage, those things are really important. Down to brass tacks, I'm a big fan. I was an econ major at UT, which is in the College of Liberal Arts. And I'm a big believer that the liberal arts education is really just the best education you can you can get. I'm very biased, obviously, but, <laughs> but I, I'm, I'm fully a believer in that because the other important thing is innovative and creative thinking. We pivoted our business because we were to, as a team, creatively think about how to do that. And along the way, even within the technology businesses, we've made little pivots here and there that required creative, innovative thinking. How do you start with a technology platform in the cloud? And one day you don't have a single client on it, not one, not, not a user. Nobody's using it. No clients, no firms on the platform, no content. You know, how do you design a strategy to go after the number one fund in the country and get them to adopt it and use it and then get the others to follow. So creativity, innovative thinking, persistence, all of these things I think are refined in a way or you're allowed to explore that type of thinking in your education within the College of Liberal Arts. So I think that one of the indications that I use when we're recruiting and, and, and looking for people to join our company um, you have to be a great writer. I think writing is incredibly important. And so we're a financial technology company, but if you're an English major, if you're a history major, if you're an economics major, there's something that we want to talk to you about because those skills are much harder to teach than to get somebody trained up to be a graphics designer or to get somebody trained up to understand how to read a balance sheet for a private equity fund or to understand the difference between private equity and hedge. So those things can be taught. It's much harder to teach somebody to think creatively and critically. It's much harder to teach somebody to be able to read something fairly voluminous and translate it and synthesize it into something that's coherent and succinct and makes sense. So those skill sets, writing, interpretive thinking, those things are incredibly valuable, very hard to teach. So my little secret, when you're a small company, and you're, you're competing for talent with the big investment banks and the big technology companies. How have we built a great team? My little secret has been College of Liberal Arts got some incredible talent and it's also got diverse talent. So um, we naturally have more access to women and people of color in colleges of liberal arts. Nice. 
Oh, that's interesting. I like the way you thought about that and just thought about your approach to the type of individuals and, and employees that you want and hire. All right. So can you talk about what you love about what you do? Yeah, there are many parts. I'll share with you the part that was surprising. Mm-hmm. So as I said, when we started Lennox Park as a consulting and advisory company, I very quickly realized that, you know what? I do love finance. I love the industry. I was having trouble finding my place in it while I was an investment banker, but I love the industry. I love the skills that I've acquired over time and putting them to use. So I love that part. So you start a company and you think, well, that's what I'm going to do all day. I'm going to assess and evaluate private equity firms and hedge funds and investment strategies. Very quickly on, I realized that there are other parts to running a business that were appealing to me. And also I think I a little bit of a, of a natural gift toward, and that's with people. So, you know, I believe that, you know, the most important thing that I can do every day is think about how to assemble the team, motivate the team and build you know, the company around its people. But maybe I'm just talking my own book because that's what I love to do. <laughs> it turns out that of the parts of our business, I enjoy the finance side of it. I enjoy the designing, participating in the design of the technologies. I love the the output and looking at the data and, and taking that data and turning it into insights. I enjoy all those things. But far and away, I like sitting down and thinking about if we just hired a, a mid-level woman who's an engineer, what's my plan to really understand who she is, how to motivate her, how to create an environment where I get the best out of that individual? And I think I'm good at that. And I've embraced really enjoying doing that every day. So, so that's the part that was surprising to me that I really love doing. Mm. Now, what about on the flip side? What challenges are out there for you? Yeah. Well, as a company, it's, it's hard being a small company trying to really sort of expand and grow. And, and there are all of these you know, hurdles that are presented. I think today I spend a lot of time thinking about what the pandemic means for our economy. And while as a technology company where one of our tools is around virtual collaboration, uh, the pandemic has sort of accelerated the use case for our business. So it's actually, it's, it's not been a bad thing for our product that promotes how to use technology to better collaborate with your peer networks, regardless of where they are, right? So in an environment where nobody's going to conferences, nobody's networking, nobody's having meetings. How do you use technologies like ours to get things done? So there's been an acceleration in the use case for us. So that has not been a bad thing. But of course, we're all tied to the economy. And if our clients don't have budgets or are being budget constrained or things aren't going that well, then we have to think about and prepare our business for how we adjust to a longer sales cycle, perhaps, or clients that were in our pipeline at one time that may not be able to be there until 2021 or something like that. So I think about those sort of broad scale economic challenges, but at the stage that we're in, the opportunities far outweigh the challenges just because we've got so much growth potential. Most of our clients are still domestic here in the US. We have a, you know, a lot of blue sky in Europe, Asia, South America. So I don't spend a lot of time thinking about those sort of economic challenges because we're not operating at levels where the opportunity set is sort of diminished, right? So as a a company, that's something I think about. You know, I I spent some time, RJ, especially in 2020, 
thinking about the difficulties and realities for businesses that are owned, run, or led by underrepresented groups, and particularly things that we've sort of had to face up to in the Black community this year. I don't spend a lot of time wondering about it because I don't think it's affected us directly, but I think about there aren't that many Black CEOs of technology companies. There aren't that many Black founders and CEOs of hedge funds private equity funds. There aren't that many women, period, in leadership positions in our industry. And it's a systemic challenge. And it can lead to a lot of other risks if we're not creating inclusive industries and companies. One thing we can all take from the protests over the past summer is that the people out there protesting were not all Black people. Right. It was everybody. Right. Black, white, brown, the elderly, young, veterans, disabled people, LGBTQ, you know, everybody was protesting discrimination against black people. Mm-hmm. So what that tells me is that if you're running a business or if you're part of an industry and it's not inclusive, you're gonna miss out on talent, on where people wanna be by the time your son or my daughter graduates from college, they won't even entertain joining a company that doesn't have a place for the LGBTQ community that isn't inclusive when it comes to people with disabilities. I mean, that's, that's where it's going. And so companies and industries just haven't caught up. And so I, I think about that challenge of the lack of inclusion at the company level and at the industry level and what that's going to mean for access to talent now, but, but certainly in five years. Yeah, it's interesting. You're right. With all the protests, all the people out there, that is something to think about, you know, just our kids and their mindset going forward. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Now, do you have any memorable moments in your career that stick out? Oh, I've got many. <laughs> some of them will be appropriate for this podcast. Some won't. Uh, <laughs> you know, there, there are a couple. I mentioned one earlier, which is that inflection point that I had to make the decision to leave. And so that was a very, very, it's a moment. You know, and, I, and I will always remember that. But one that's a little bit more recent, when we made the decision to convert to a technology company, this was meaningful steps away from the industry that I built my expertise in, right? Right. It was an investment banking. It was an investment management. We're now a technology company. So it's a real difference. I was happy when we first started Lenox Park as a consulting and advisory firm. I just left Maryland a year later. And so when our first client, which I think was Bank of America, our first institutional client was Bank of America. And when we won that mandate from them, I was happy, of course, but the happiness didn't have any real surprise to it. I expected that we were going to be able to do these things. I expected we were going to get, be able to win the, the clients that way. And, that, and we had the expertise to be able to do it. We worked on that. When we pivoted to being a technology company and you design a product and your engineers start, I mean, you design a product starting on a board with one box somewhere and you say, what is this platform going to be? 
And then your engineers take that and they start with one line of code. And then you fast forward and all of a sudden you have this platform and you go out and you try to get people to buy into it and subscribe to it. And I will tell you that the first time a top five pension fund in the country signed our subscription agreement to subscribe to our technology was a very memorable moment because mm. we built the entire thing. This wasn't a subcontracting thing. It was our company, our product. We designed it on a whiteboard and translated it into code, packaged it and delivered it to a top five pension fund who signed a multi-year six-figure contract That's awesome. for our company to do it. And you, you sort of lean back and go, wow, we, we built this and we did it. And somebody else asked us to do it. So, so, so that was a memorable moment. That, definitely. From an idea to that, that's incredible. That's awesome. Wow, yeah. that's good to hear. Yeah. All right. So, hey, Jason, we're, we're at the end of this interview. I want to head to this quick hitter session where I ask you questions for fun for people to get to know you a little bit better. But before I get there, right. though, <laughs> but before I get there, though, is there anything additional that you would like to discuss or anything you feel like I might have left off asking you? No, I mean, I think, you, you know, this has been really enjoyable for me. A great dialogue. I mean, may, maybe one other thing, because I feel like I'd remiss without mentioning it the importance of the network around you away from colleagues, clients and, and, and work. But I don't think there's, I just, I can't imagine an entrepreneur that, that is able to successfully navigate the journey, do it and come out on the other side intact without family and friends around them. And my family and my friends have been beyond extraordinary in supporting, in lifting up, in, and keeping grounded, you know, at times and, and all of the things that you need, you know, when you're on this journey. So I had the incredible opportunity to give the commencement address a few years ago at UT for the College of Liberal Arts. And one of the things that I said in there that I just firmly believe is that the sooner you realize that you should invest in your family and friends big time, you know, take time every day to invest in those relationships, because if you're lucky enough over your lifetime, you will need them, they'll need you, and you'll know that you put in the work. And so people talk a lot about mentors and mentorship, and that's important for sure. It's been helpful for me. But the family and the friends, the close ones around you, it's, it's to me, seemingly impossible you know, to get this done in any way that's healthy and, and, and rewarding without family and friends. Yeah. Well, yeah. I wholeheartedly agree all right so let's get to these quick hitter questions uh-oh <laughs> first question what's your favorite sports team these are quick hitter questions you could take your time <laughs> yeah. well the thing is one of the piece, the sort of collateral damage of you know incredibly busy life is i like pulled away from sports you wouldn't even recognize me not only do i not play any more basketball but i hardly I hardly watch any of it, but mm. I will say that if I have the time to indulge, I still like to watch the Texas basketball team. You know, yep. there's a lot of a lot is in history there, so yeah. so I'll go with that. All right, hook them. All right, yeah. favorite movie or show? Favorite movie or show? Hmm. My favorite movie 
this is, you, you have to forgive me oh. because this will resonate with you and you have an eight-year-old and I don't watch a lot of movies. I'm just thinking, I'm like, which are the ones I've watched lately? And they're all these eight-year-old appropriate movies. <laughs> uh, you know, a show that I recently watched because it, it won a lot of awards was Shit's Creek and I mm. found it hilarious. Yeah. And that was a really, really great show. I enjoyed that very much, but I, I don't I don't watch a lot of TV. In fact, I don't have a TV at my place. Oh, wow, I, okay. You know, every every now and then I, I get on an iPad and, and watch something, but Schitt's Creek was really enjoyable. That's yeah. something I did, I did recently. Yeah, 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 my wife watches that and I'll see it sometimes and it's funny. All yeah. right, favorite yeah. musical artist or group? Favorite musical artist or group? I have to say that I'm Prince fan. Prince was the best best concert I've ever been to. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I think back, you know, over time, there were some monumental moments in my life, and the soundtrack to them, oftentimes, <laughs> not always, but oftentimes, a Prince song. Nice. So, uh, and it was just the best concert I've ever been to. And and, oh, yeah. and that moment where you appreciate a musician in to their fullest and I just don't think there's a better musician to yeah. appreciate. Well, that's a heavy statement, but it does it for me. Yeah. Uh, did you see him at Madison Square Garden? I did. Yeah, I did. And, the, and I saw him there, and it was such a great show. I bought tickets to go and see him in New Jersey right after that. And oh, wow. In Philadelphia right after that. Oh, wow. <laughs> <You know>? Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, it was great. It was great. All right. Favorite vacation spot? Italy. Yeah. I can be more specific if, if you want, but Italy is, that is an easy one. That's yeah. uh, have you done, my heart there. Have you done Cinque Terre there in Italy? Yep, I've done it yeah. all. I, yeah. uh, when I lived in London, I spent a lot of time traveling um, through Italy. And so I've, I've done a lot of Italy and, and just, it, it never gets old. Yeah. It never gets old. I love yeah. it. <laughs> and favorite food or drink? Oh, favorite food or drink. I love Italian food. But I will tell you that my comfort food is still West African food. Oh, yeah. And yeah, that's my go-to when I want to feel like I'm home. But there's a dish in Leone called cassava leaves, and it's, it's fantastic. So West African food is, is right up there for me. All right. Drink. Yeah, drink. Now, that depends on the day. Some, some days it's got to be a dirty martini. But, um, but most days I'm a wine drinker. I love my wine, and I enjoy all varietals, oftentimes depending on the on the season and the, the setting, but I like my wine. Nice. All right. Well, hey, Jason, this has been great. Good catching up with you and, and talking to you about this, about what, what you do, and just great work, all that you do for the industry, the community, UT, and Sierra Leone, just everywhere, just all the work that you do for people. It's, it's, it's amazing, and it's great, and thank you for coming on to the podcast, and keep doing the good work. Man, I appreciate it. I appreciate you inviting me. And and likewise, I'm so impressed by what you're doing. And and this is really, really important. Uh, So delighted to be part of it. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you. That means a lot. All right. Well, have a good one. All right, man. Take care, RJ. For more information on Lennox Park Solutions, you can go to www.lennoxparkinc.com, L-E-N-O-X, parkinc.com, or you can email at info at lennoxparkinc.com. Thank you, everyone. If you have any comments or questions or would like to be on the podcast, please reach out to me on Instagram at Rodolfo Cooper. Thank you. Bye.